Hello and welcome back to the Growing Revolution Smart Podcast. I'm Eric Olson with Smart Pot Fabric Planners, and this week our guest is Chris Witten, who many people in the industry know as Hordy Chris from his time on the Heavy Tea Grow Show. And we wanted to get him on the podcast because he's got a long history in the hydro industry and a lot of great stories. So, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. How are you guys doing? Man, so good to see you always. Um, so just getting right into it, uh, you grew up in Michigan and then moved to Virginia and eventually to SoCal. Can you explain what brought <coughs> that about and then your, I guess, beginnings uh, in hydro? Yeah, um, when I was a small child, like seven years old, my father transferred from Michigan to Virginia with a company he worked for. And uh I, I went from, you know, Michigan to Virginia, which was a complete different change of scenery, even just like the def different ethnicities and everything. It was a whole melting pot of people. And I grew up there and graduated high school there. And I was always fond of cannabis. You know, I started smoking cannabis as a teenager, basically. And in uh, in we try to grow seeds in the woods, you know, and whatnot. And you know how that goes. And but getting caught with cannabis in a place like Virginia back in the early 90s was horrible. I mean, even if you had a single seed in your car, you'd get like six months in jail. It was just brutal. And a friend of mine was graduating from college up at uh, Radford University. And he was like, hey, man, I don't want to go back to Williamsburg where we grew up. He wanted to move to somewhere warm. And I was like, well, I've been to California, Huntington Beach back when I was 14 to visit a family friend. And he's like, well, either there or Florida. I was like, I'd, I'd go to California, but I wouldn't go to Florida. And he was like, okay. So we had a mutual friend who lived in California. She, he flew out to meet her, met her on spring break, met her husband, who was a enterprise rental car manager. And he got into enterprise making decent money right out of college with a degree. So he said, Hey, I'm moving. And I was like, all right, well, I'll be out there in a few months. You know, I need to save up a little bit more money. And then I was in a situation and all of a sudden there was this huge bust of all these people. And I realized that if I didn't get out of town, I was probably going to be next. So packed my car, drove to Radford, drove to California with a 1986 VW GTI with 200,000 miles on it and three grand in my pocket. And uh, it ended up working out. And we were there about a year and we got out of our apartment and we rented a house and we went to uh, Newport Beach to a store called AAA Hydroponics that was owned by Kurt Osherman, who was from Sentinel Controllers and Sentinel CO2 stuff. And we bought a light and some GH three part and went back to our new house and started growing. And the rest is history, I guess. Uh, from that point on, um, I eventually would go to the grow store and I asked like, hey, do you have something that I can like use the dryer plug and run more than four lights because I have two rooms. And I had we had thought about if you could flip the lights every 12 hours off the same ballast, you wouldn't have to upgrade the electricity in a rental house. And they didn't have anything like that. So I started researching it and ended up making the first flip boxes that were sold in the industry. And uh, that allowed you to run your ballast to the unit. And then the unit had a timer. And it would flip. You the, invented the flip box. Yeah, I was the first flip box on the market. I was knocked off by Power Box and others, but Horty, okay. Horty, wow. Con Horty Control was the original flip boxes on the market. 
And I brought those nice. out in like 2006 or 2007. And then at the time we used air cooled reflectors. And, um, you, you know, you're sucking because it's Southern California. Eric Bixa had written an article about making a sealed room with like a lung that would allow you to have CO2 and air conditioning and not have to blow air out. So I just stuck a window AC in the room and ran my air-cooled hoods from the attic through the room and back into the attic. And I had a, a, a greenhouse controller that was made by Cap that I had purchased from, from uh, AAA. And it had a CO2 sniffer and CO2 tank hooked up. So I got a CO2 tank and hooked it up. And my friends were like, that's not going to work. You need fresh air. And I'm like, fresh air is CO2 to a plant. And this was like probably 1999 or so. And a couple of weeks later, they came over to visit and everybody sealed their room up. I mean, the plants looked phenomenal, you know? It was like controlled environment agriculture in the beginning of that in our industry. And uh, yeah. it worked out great. So the flip box idea was going on and the air-cooled hoods would get so dirty. And in the beginning time, you'd have to aluminum tape all the seams on them because they didn't have those nice rubber gaskets and the quick release clamps, right? So I would, yep. I would seal these things all up. And by the time I harvested, you couldn't even see the bulb barely from all the dust. Yeah. So I went and bought one of those HEPA filters that looks like a car air intake filter, the Dupasse or Active Air, whatever they were called at the time. And I put it on my fan and the fan burned out because it would it overheated because of the airflow loss. So um, at the time, I, I, I'm big into German cars and race cars and, you know, Porsche, Audi, all that stuff. So I knew that race cars used reticulated foam as an air filter. And being in Southern California, I also realized that Baja off-road race trucks don't use a K&N air filter. They all use reticulated foam that's coated in oil like you'd have on a dirt bike or whatever. Okay. And so I called a foam company and asked if they could send me samples and the president of the company said, why don't you just go to Unifilter over in Fullerton, California? And I was like, well, Unifilter has been around since the 70s. Every motocross champion in the world since the 1970s is sponsored by Unifilter. They're all over the world. Like, they aren't going to want to make something for people who grow weed. And he was like, well, have you ever met the president of Unifilter? And I'm like, no. He's like, let, <laughs> let me set you up with an interview. So I, I go to the I go to their headquarters with some Max Shield magazines to show them pictures of air-cooled hoods and whatnot. And uh, the guy greets me at the door with like a mullet, a, a metal militia T-shirt, and some checkerboarded vans on. And we go in the meeting room, and I start showing him this book. And he's like, is this for growing weed? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, bitchin'. So I knew right I knew right then I was totally in. So contacted Dennis from CanFan and he sent me one of the, every size 4, 6, 8, 10, 12 of their high output fans and we bolted them to a device called a flow bench that's used to measure airflow when it's being filtered or like if you're uh, like making cylinder heads to flow better for racing and they were able to engineer a fan a filter for me shaped like a mushroom cap that was made out of articulated foam that would exceed the speed rating of all the fans, the CFM of all the fans. Um, they're all rated with four feet of tubing on each side, but the actual fan without any ducting on it flows a little bit higher. So they were able to meet the rating on the box. And we knew that they use petroleum based oil to keep the filter sticky. 
and I had them develop a castor, a castor oil-based alternative for our industry. And we released the Dust Room, and it quickly became the number one selling HEPA filter in the industry and still is. And it literally kept my air-cooled hoods, my ducting, the fans completely clean. Like, it looked like you never even turned them on. And it was a game changer at the time. And uh, I, I filed a patent for that because by that time, people were knocking off my flip boxes because it wasn't patented. And I received a patent for the use of articulated foam as a filtration device for horticultural applications. And so we now are evolving with, with all of that. But yeah, that was uh, 13 years ago. Oh, okay. So a patent lasts for what, 20 years? So 20, you still 20, got... Uh, 20 years. Yeah, I've still, got, still se got seven years on that. Seven to go. And the way the patent was written, it was extremely vague. <laughs> My patent attorney happened to be fresh out of college at the time. Now he's one of the top 50 patent attorneys in the country. And nice. he, he knows ways to kind of maybe... We're working on it right now to see if there's a way we can change some things in it and try to try to get it extended by... like branching another patent off of that original idea. It's really hard to do, but he thinks he can pull it off. So, but for right now, I've got seven years left. And uh, as the industry has moved away from air-cooled hoods and things of that nature, uh, we now we have a lot of vertical airflow gardens. People running the PIP systems, the air glides, the IEG or uh, IGE stuff, all that. And they just have fans on the end, just blowing contaminants all down the racks on the plants. So we've made a lot of headway into that industry, keeping all of that airflow clean. And uh, we've been working with some greenhouses as well. There's a greenhouse here in Marshall, Michigan, where I'm at, that I outfitted with filtration on their uh, guillotine wall that covers the wet wall. We took out the panels and just put foam up. And they passed all their testing for the first time in their history there. And that's led me to also, uh, you probably remember Chris from Mills Nutrients. He, he has the proving grounds, the big greenhouses out in uh, Southern California, down in San Diego, that he does with DNA genetics or whatever. And uh, I went out there just a few months ago and measured it up. And we're converting that whole place to also being filtered as well. So nice. it, it's working out. Nice. And, uh, and does that, uh, is that like, uh, going to be a, a retail product with like a, you know, a branding to it, or is that just a strictly commercial product then? <laughs> well, we're, we're, uh, Hordy control and dust room has kind of, it's, it's overstated. It's welcome, I guess I'd say. So, uh, I I've started a new company. It's called Horty filter, which makes a little bit more sense. Everybody thinks these things are for growing mushrooms, which we're also making patches for mushroom kits because it'll keep contaminants out. But nice. uh, we're, we're changing it up to a uh, Horty filter and we'll have a commercial ag side because I believe the industry is going to full commercial ag with all the distributors falling apart and kicking all the products out of them and whatnot. And uh, we'll still manufacture the, the dust shroom, but it'll be called the dust dome. And so that, that part will be for your vertical indoor commercial and for retail, it'll still be available because a lot of people use them on tents. Right. And then uh, we'll have the greenhouse division will kind of be separate because that's more of a commercial ag, big ag type situation. I don't see right. having four foot wide by four foot high, big foam panels in your local grow store being 
something that a lot of people would be buying. So it'll be more of a yeah. commercial division. And then uh, we have another product we're bringing out called the Humid X, H-U-M-I-D hyphen X. And it's a reticulated foam filter for all Quest and Anden dehumidifiers because they currently use just a pleated paper filter, which is way restrictive as it gets dirty and doesn't keep the contaminants trapped because they push through the, the thin fabric or the paper. Mm. And also they're prone to humidity issues because there's a lot of humidity coming through that machine and you get mold and things growing in them. So we're coming out with a less restrictive, better filter to put into all those commercial units so that people don't have to take them off the ceiling of their warehouse and take them outside and power wash them out every couple months. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and those, and those filters are going to be reusable. Yeah. The, the filters are reusable. They're reticulated foam and you can take it out every couple months and uh, wash it out and re-oil it. And it's good as new. And it, typically the foam has about a five to seven year life, depending on UV exposure. So that's why we've always been able to offer a five-year warranty on the filter itself because the material is much more durable than paper or any other form of standard filtration. Yeah, I mean, paper filters, you're supposed to uh, exchange those like, what, monthly or, you know, oh, every other month yeah, at, every, at the latest. Every couple of months at the latest. And when you pull them out, they're full of dirt. But if you notice, there's duct cleaning services for your home, right, that'll come out and clean out all your ductwork. Because the dust yeah. gets by the filter, <clears throat> so it gets into your into your plumbing. I can take a brand new can fan, put a filter on it, and hang it up outside and let it run for a year. And you bring it inside and take the filter off, and there's not even dust on the blades. It's it's completely clean. Like the day you bought it, it's it filters so effectively. It filters below the level of contamination that the human eye can see, down to about yeah. one micron at over ninety percent efficiency. That's amazing. Um, yeah, you know, it just goes to show you, you you spend a little bit more on a quality product. And yeah, it, it might be a little bit more expensive up front, but it's going to save you time uh, on the back end. It's going to save you, you know, I guess just it's going to give you better performance. Um, and that's what we're all about here, too, uh, <laughs> with SmartPods. Absolutely. And the thing, uh, the thing is also with the with the uh, other HEPA filter on the market, the active air one that's sold through Hydrofarm, it brand new out of the box, it cuts your airflow by 75%. I've tested it on the, on that flow bench machine. The the for example, the six inch can high output fan back in the day was rated at 447 CFM, and it pushes 604 CFM with no ducting on it, without any static pressure loss. Our filter will do 604 CFM on that same fan. The eight inch was at 827 and we got 807, but it's rated at 747. So I'm still above that threshold, right? That HEPA filter, the active air one, when we put it on the six inch filter, the CFM dropped to 150 right out of the box, wow. brand new. And it's also washable and reusable but when you wash it, the, the fibers, the filaments that make up the filter, they swell like when you cook spaghetti. And then once it dries out, they shrink back down and it creates bigger holes in the thing. So it flows a little bit better air, but it lets more contaminants through. 
So it's a, it right. was a double-edged sword. People used to buy them, soak them in water, let them dry out, and then install them so they could get better airflow, but it's at the detriment to filtration. Yeah, kind of defeating uh, the main purpose. Correct. Wow. Well, that's cool. Uh, sounds like you got a lot on, on your plate uh, these days and then going forward. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of go back in time. Uh, you were, I mean, besides heavy tea, like a mainstay on the heavy tea grow show, how did that show all come about? And then, you know, talk about like your role on that program then. <clears throat> yeah, that was a blast from the past right there. Um, I knew Tyler heavy tea. Uh, he owned long beach and Cerritos hydroponics. I didn't really shop there at the time. I shopped at orange County hydroponics with Mark from mad farmer, but he had helped Tyler set up Long Beach. So I knew of Tyler. And then when I started selling flip boxes, I started just going to local stores, offering them up. And then, hey, I got a customer who wants one. Hey, I know someone else. Who, oh, that guy's buddy wants. So it started to snowball. So I made a trip to all the stores and I went and officially met Tyler. As time went on, uh, we would trade genetics and stuff and smoke out or have a tall cam at his office or whatever, you know. And then uh, as time went on, uh, I started doing trade shows and then he wanted to bring in. So they brought in global greenhouse ballast. I believe it was, is what they were calling them. Um, we brought in the rock nutrients and the hydro halos and they made some glasses called grogles, which were the pre before method sevens that would shift the spectrum of your HPS light back to a more blue so that things looked better. So I started getting trade show boosts at max yield and I was spending $2,000 a month, I think at the time, advertising two half page ads for both products in Max Shield. But because I was sold through distribution, I couldn't really tell if it worked, right? I didn't know if right. those ads were getting me any business. <clears throat> the sales would pick up through the distributors, but stores weren't calling me like direct, you know, which at the time was probably more just the model of the business, you know, you'd see it in Max Shield, you'd get it from the distributor, right? Um, right. So after a couple trade shows, I was especially San Francisco where all the nutrient companies, even smart pots would be handing out free samples to everybody. And people are pushing baby strollers through there with hundreds of dollars of nutrients and additives, putting it in their car, coming back, getting a second helping. And then what that would do is after that San Francisco show, all the stores wouldn't have any business for three months because everybody's selling all their samples on Craigslist, right? Yep. So yep. I was like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way to directly market to the end users without having to give away a bunch of shit and spend tens of thousands of dollars on a weekend in San Fran with an expensive booth and hotel rooms and dinners and, you know, whatnot. So Tyler said to me that he was thinking about doing an online radio show. And there was a gentleman uh, who used to work on a radio a syndicated talk show called the Tom Likas show, which was huge in LA and the producer of the Tom Likas show, they did it on CBS radio. Um, Vinny stone, he knew how to set up the studio and the talk, all the microphones and the telephone system with all the lines. So we decided to do the heavy tea grow show and it was going to be the philosophy was heavy tea, the, the king of the castle, right? And Horty Chris, his co-host, who was knowledgeable because I'd been growing for, you know, 15, 20 years by that point anyways. And uh, Dr. Duff, which was Tyler's best friend, 
who has a lazy eye and he's a little bit slow, but he's pretty funny. So he was like the resident idiot. And we just came up with like a little comedy scene to, to answer questions. And, uh, when someone would call, we'd ask them where they shop. They'd tell us the store name and we'd mail their prize and samples from our distributors to that store for them to go pick up, to try to drive business into the stores. And as soon as we proposed that at the next trade show, I spoke with GH and Botanicare and Smart Pots and Blue Lab Meters and all these companies, and they all were on board. And overnight, that thing took off. And we got, I think within the first couple of months, we had over 80,000 listeners immediately on a live podcast that was interactive with, with the actual audience. And I mean, at six o'clock, they'd open up those phone lines and that phone would ring and for about 10 minutes and then all the lines would be full and people would try to call for three or four hours and couldn't get through. It was pretty amazing time. And it gave us, it gave us a lot of clout. Yeah. I mean, the heavy tea growth show really was, uh, you know, one of the first podcasts in general, and it had to be the first cannabis, uh, podcast. And actually, uh, I mean, you guys couldn't even talk about cannabis uh, for a while on the show. It was tomatoes. Yeah, we would call it purple tomatoes, pine cones, whatever kind of, you know, words we could come up with. We would screen the callers. We'd tell them, hey, look, if you mention cannabis, weed, I don't care if you're in a wheelchair and it's medical and you're legal, you can't talk about it. Because at that time, we were still all afraid of the RICO laws, you know. Mention that I'm making a product that can be used to grow illegal drugs. And now I'm a continuing criminal enterprise and I can get 20 to life. Right. So even at trade shows, the elephant in the room was cannabis, but there was no talking about about cannabis. And as the show went on, industry people started advertising in high times and other pro cannabis things. And so we just one day we were like, fuck it. And we just started talking about weed and it got even bigger and uh, we didn't go to prison. So I guess our timing was spot on at that point yeah no kidding yeah i i was on that show a few times and um yeah very knowledge based but done in a fun comical way that you know talking about plants is is very repetitive you know the the growth cycle it's not like it changes you know drastically so you guys really found uh, a good way to make it fun and entertaining and uh, I'm sure a lot of people are, are missing the show because uh, I, I know it was a popular one. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, even even my um, I have an aunt and uncle that are pretty anti all of this stuff. And they call me just a loser stoner and all these, you know, like, oh, he's just a druggie. And, but they listened to the show one time. My uncle came to me because he grows a lot of tomatoes and stuff in the summer and sets up a little veggie stand or whatever. And I've given him some newts back in the day like here sprinkle some of this on your plants oh my tomatoes are the size of grapefruit you know it's like yeah damn right they are right so he got into it he told me that the first couple times they listened to the show they listened the whole time because they were laughing so even though it was stuff they didn't know what we were talking about calyxes thc levels bricks you know whatever it is cycles pruning they had no idea what we were talking about, but just the fact that it was all said in a comedic trio and interacting with the caller, it was, I mean, that three to four hours that we do that show every Wednesday night, it would fly by. It, it wasn't like I was like looking at the clock. It was like, wow, we're almost halfway through the show. 
you know, and we uh, decimated a lot of good, a lot of good info. And to this day, there's people who hit me up on social media, like, man, who do you change my life? You know, I was growing the swag and we just listened to what you guys said to do and it worked. And now I have, you know, my own facility and I'm licensed. And so it was good to, cause back then people didn't share info. It was so competitive. No. You didn't let anybody know what, what nutrients do you use? What ones do you use? Oh, I use this. Oh yeah. Yeah. I use that too. You know, they, even right. if they didn't, they would just, no one would share the info. And I figured the only way we're going to overgrow the government is if we teach anybody who can get on a computer and log onto this website, how to do it. Then everyone will know how to do it. The cat's out of the bag. The secret sauce is lost, but at least it's, it's too many, it's, you know, there's too many people out there who now have that knowledge and can go to home Depot if they have to and start tomorrow and grow better weed than anybody did up until the two thousands. So it was pretty, it was a pretty powerful movement. And I think they still do the show on Wednesdays, but it's a lot smaller of a show. And I, I bowed out of it about five or six years ago. It had kind of run its course for me and I stepped away and, you know, I'm not going to take credit for anything, but a lot of people told me that once that three person dynamic was no longer there, like when Dr. Duff left the show, it was just me and Tyler and we'd have a guest host every week. And I think I saw that the magic was kind of gone and it just wasn't the same. So I stepped away from it, but, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that I'll never forget. And it, it secured our legacy in the industry and brought us a lot of business. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty happy for that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, kind of going off what you said, like it, once you teach enough people to grow cannabis, it's like, well, the government isn't going to arrest, you know, a hundred thousand people and well, or maybe they will, but uh, <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. for another show. We can talk about what the government's probably going to do to us next, but yeah, you're right. Once it's common knowledge, and everybody knows, and, and nowadays, I mean, things back in the day, it was, they didn't have feeding charts. There weren't additives. I mean, when I started, there weren't even charcoal filters. In Huntington Beach, we'd set up in the garage or whatever. By the time we were four weeks into bloom, the neighbors would be looking at us, walking down the street with their dogs, and we'd start looking for a new place to move, and we'd just move every harvest because you'd stink the whole neighborhood up, and there was nothing you could do about it, and it wasn't legal. You know what I mean? So it was... It was different times. And nowadays, I mean, I visit some facilities and they're the size of Walmarts and they employ hundreds of people and and it all looks good. I mean, it's pretty hard not to grow good weed now when it was, used to be the other way around. It was hard to find well-grown cannabis and now it's available everywhere so cheap that it destroyed the whole industry, basically. <laughs> right. Now, now it's kind of a commodity. It's uh, right. cannabis has gone back to tomatoes. Uh, it's gone back sense. to pre-COVID <laughs> toilet paper prices. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, kind of speaking of smart pots, when were you first introduced to smart pot containers, and what was your experience with them? I'm assuming that you've used them over the oh, years. Oh, I, I have I have a bunch in my garage that I got to throw away now that summertime or dump out now that summertime's here and I can actually get to the dump spot right in the woods where we dump all of our old uh, media. But um, yeah, I, I I still use them to this day. I give them to relative. I mean, I, obviously they used to give me ones that said hoardy control on them. The, they were custom embroidered heavy tea grow show. I have so many smart pots here that I just had laying around that I take, you know, my aunt, a rose bush and it's in a smart pot. And I'm like, here's a rose bush. Nice. You can move it around the yard. If you, you know, on the porch or patio or whatever. Um, 
the first time I was exposed to him was at a trade show. I met the smart, cause back in the day, the trade shows were small, you know, like we, I remember my first trade show, there was maybe 20 exhibitors. And, and then, you know, even when I, smart pots first came on the scene, um, I met Charles and uh, we all were out at dinner somewhere in San Francisco or somewhere. And we were all just getting along. Everybody had like the common goal, you know, Not, like even, even if you listen to different music, you, you found commonality in something that you enjoyed, even if it wasn't gardening. Cause a lot of people in this industry weren't gardeners. Like when we first started the show, people were like, <coughs> man, dude, how do you know so much about growing? And I'm like, cause I'm a fucking grower. Like, you know, I didn't go to college and get a job as a sales rep in this cannabis industry. Like I, I started out committing felonies, you know? So that's how I got to where I'm at. And I first met Charles at a trade show. And then we went to everybody, Hey, with this heavy tea grow show idea. And, you know, they were on board and they were one of the first people to come on board. And then I met Dustin and Tim and yourself and everybody in the group. And, and it just, they were on the show all the time. Smart pots was on the show all the time. We'd have them on probably at least once a month. And even if they weren't the scheduled guest, they'd show up to the green room anyways, in the back, you know, it'd be a party there for industry reps that were in Southern California doing visits and whatnot. And over time I came to the point where, I mean, I still wake up on Christmas morning and I have a text from Charles Jackson, Merry Christmas, buddy. You know, we're, it's just those bonds that we grew a long time ago have, have remained true because we were all true people. And, uh, I mean, from plastic pot to a fabric pot, it just makes so much sense. And the technology behind it, <coughs> it's like, why would you not use a fabric pot? You know, you don't get the root circling and the heating of the root zone and all of these things that are detrimental. You don't get the even drying back and everything. Like, they just make sense. So it's one of those products that was, I mean, you can tell how good a product is by how many knockoffs there are. And, you know... <laughs> There's there's more fabric pots on the market than there are nutrient lines. So that tells you a That's lot. That's true. That's true. Yeah, and uh kind of getting to to what you were saying about, you know, um the our our industry, especially especially ten years ago, was much more tight knit and we just kind of became fans of each other and each other's products. And it, it was kind of like a I almost equated it to like a traveling circus. You know, you kind of see the same people at the with same, a bunch of carnies. You know, same, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's like a like a rock tour. You know, you're just seeing the same people in different cities, and it's just it's like a family. I mean, it, it it was you almost can't even talk about it. It's like Fight Club. You know what I mean? Like just people picking you up in private jets and flying you to wherever the hell, cause they're on their way there. And you said you would go, but you couldn't get a plane ticket. And somebody comes through on a private jet and picks you up and you're disco dusting your way all the way over to wherever the hell and dinners that are five figures, you know, like somebody picks up the tab on a, I mean, I've paid for $12,000 meals for a group of people at some high end restaurant that you had to have reservations to get in. But so-and-so knows somebody who knows somebody. And then 420 in Denver, um, my birthday is April 19th. And I remember I got a call three days before the 420 Denver Festival. And these people were like, uh, Ryan uh, from uh, Extreme Gardening and a couple other people were like, yo, Hordy, you coming to 420 in Denver? I was like, 
Ah, my birthday's the day before. I wasn't really planning on it. They're like, fuck that, dude. You got to come to Denver, bro. I'm like, we're going to have a huge party for you. The horde apocalypse is going to start. <laughs> so then all of a sudden on the Facebook, other people from all over the country go, if Horty shows up, I'll be there. And it was like 10 or 15 people who were like, if you go, I'll, I'll get a plane ticket tonight. And I was like, all right, you fuckers. So I booked the room. I booked the hotel or the flights for me and my fiance at the time and end up at the Ritz Carlton in the presidential suite for the whole fucking weekend. People, the door was just, we just left it propped open. I mean, there was no less than 50 people in there 24 seven for three days. I don't, I don't even think I took the sheets down on the bed. We were all just awake and going to this event and that event and just so many stories from that industry in that time. And, and to watch so many people literally go from like growing weed in Humboldt County on their second felony to selling their company for $50 million, you know, and you watch the, this happen to people. I mean, even myself, I, I haven't sold my company um, and I definitely won't get 50 million bucks for it right now, maybe in the future, but um, just the, just the success, not just from the money standpoint, but we built this industry in a time when it was very risky for what we were doing. You know, there were definitely eyes on this industry and those trade shows and these products and those stores that were selling all of this stuff because everybody knew what it was for. And to see people that I came up with, I mean, I shared a booth. The first, the first time I was in a booth was with Sheldon Auberman and Sean Brissett when they had Quantum Ballast, the orange ballast. And they had a big 20 by 20 or whatever for all their shit. And on the front corner, they put me there with my flip boxes on a little display that flipped like light bulbs just to kind of show how it worked. And on the corner next to me was Ross Haley with Vermicrop. We both had a little table right at the front corner on either corner of the booth. And I mean, look at what he, I mean, he's successfully cashed out of six or seven cannabis businesses now. And like, I remember when he just had a, you know, Sheldon let him set up a little Vermicrop display on the corner of his booth. And, you know, you see, you see the success stories and, all that through that. I think one day they'll have to make a movie about that era. It was legendary. I, I honestly, that's kind of what I was hoping to do with this podcast was to at least kind of chronicle some of those stories that, you know, if we, if, if we don't get it down, you know, uh, digitally, they'll be lost and forgotten forever. So yeah, that's kind of the goal of, of this was to, to make sure that those, um, founding members weren't forgotten right. uh, about, uh, and, and you, and you're a big part of that too. So well, thank you. Um, yeah, of course. So what's, what's the cannabis scene like in Michigan, I guess, compared to California, what you were used to, um, you know, <coughs> especially like today, how, how would you rate the cannabis scene there? I would say it's probably about the same all over the country. You still have your black market, but your commercial has gotten so huge and it's so competitive. It's just like the hydro industry, you know, like I always used to tell people, if you're a mechanic, you buy snap on tools, right? If you're a dead serious mechanic, you're buying snap on tools. Now you're going to pay three times as much for the snap on tools as you would for some Husky or some craftsman shit you buy at the local Home Depot, right? But 
everyone knows that a snap-on wrench is just better. The the ratchets are tighter. It lasts forever. It lasts forever, and and you make money. You're using it to make money, right? If you go on the snap-on truck and you buy fifty thousand dollars worth of tools from the guy and hand him the money right there and ask for a free T-shirt, <laughs> he'll tell you they don't have any free T-shirts. Our snap-on guy in Southern California used to have a bucket of red vines on the counter in the back, and he'd be like, oh, since you spent some money, you can have a couple red vines. They won't give you anything. There's no discount. There's no freebies because that's what it is, right? In this industry, people are making way more money than mechanics are, and they go into the hydro store, and they want to pay a nickel more than the hydro store paid for it, and the hydro store is willing to sell it to them for a nickel over what they paid, and it's like, you're using this $200 piece of equipment to make tens of thousands of dollars, right? <clears throat> so there was value, but it got, it was a race to the bottom. A lot of stores are out of business because they gave away all their profit competing with each other. I see the same thing happening in the cannabis, the legal cannabis market. Everybody's basically $25 ounces. You see it on billboards. You're like, how in the fuck is that even possible? And I wouldn't want to smoke that, but it is what it is, right? So I yeah. find here that when I first got here two years ago during COVID, uh, black market prices were still over $2,000 a pound. I couldn't believe it because in California, it was down sub 1500 or so. <coughs> um, out here, there's a lot of property. Everything's spread out. Guys got big pole barns with a lot of lights in them. I mean, I've seen... 70-year-old farmers in overalls come in the hydro store with a trailer and pick up eight pallets of dirt. I mean, they're, everybody's a farmer out here, whether it's corn or cannabis, right? Um, yeah. But now, prices are way down, sub $1,000. Um, dispensaries going out of business, getting busted for taking illegal stuff in the back door. So I think it kind of, what happens in California, Oregon, Colorado, I think it's it's been a cycle of what's happened. And I think it was not known if it would happen. It was a potential, but it's just kind of the way that the cookie crumbled over time, I guess I'd say. Now I've seen over the last year, a lot of people, even who grew out here for the last 10 or 15 years, have shut it down. They were like, it's not worth all the labor and everything to put on a quality product and then get beat up by brokers over trying to get it for next to nothing. It's not profitable, so they stopped. Well, then guess what happened? The prices started going back up again because now there's not as much black market material available. Um, I think that also places like Oklahoma, California, and Oregon, they're using the Postal Service and the uh, UPS and FedExes, and they're shipping tens of thousands of pounds a week all over the country to other states that aren't legal. And so that's driven the prices down. They basically, the West has flooded all the way to the East Coast. Um, I, I see it more and more every single day. Nobody's really looking for any weed here because just like Amazon, you can have it dropped off at your front door by your cousin's nephew's best friend's sister-in-law's brother who grows it in Okefenokee, Oklahoma, and he'll send you pounds for 400 bucks a piece. And you know, how are you gonna compete with that? So. I think regulation's been kind of a cancer on the society or on the, and on the situation, but I, I know it's for the better in the long run, hopefully, but you know, then the big pharma money, I mean, we can talk about this for weeks, but I see the industry here is probably pretty much the same as it is everywhere else. Everywhere else that has full recreational and medicinal 
Um, they've experienced the same growing pains as Michigan has too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really like $4,000 a pound weed was a function of its being illegal and the risks that you had to take, you know, to, to make that happen. And now that those, I guess, uh, consequences are gone, uh, cannabis has definitely become a lot more of a commodity and I would equate it to beer, how it's probably going to end up, you know, I think there's going to be a handful of, you know, Miller, Coors, you know, Michelob, uh, grower ops, but hopefully the craft growers will still be around, uh, you know, making enough money to make it worthwhile. Cause I, I like consuming good cannabis. I don't like, uh, you know, mids. Right. So fingers crossed for the future, I guess. Yeah. I think that they're going to try to shove a square peg into a round hole. Right. And they're going to try to just force some marijuana lights or some marijuana 100s into every Seven Eleven and convenience store for five bucks a pack or whatever it is. But it's, it's not just like, chips it's not lays or fritos or doritos or you know it's it's and i think that the reason that you have a strong cannabis or a strong craft beer market is because it's not just people aren't just <coughs> getting high they enjoy the flavor or the the smell or the different effect that they get from something and i think that you'll always have a craft cannabis market because there's always people who want quality over quantity I mean, there's always yeah. going to be that guy who just needs a cheap cup of coffee to get his day started. But then there's those people who got to wear their Ugg boots to go get their ice crappy, whatever, caramel macchiatos at Starbucks. And I think that you're going to end up with that still um, over time. But it's definitely we've got a long way to go. I don't I don't think we're really going to see where it's going to ev eventually go until it's federally legal. I, until it's federally yeah. legal, it's just a toss up. and. You know, it's there's a lot of uncertainty, and I think that that also plays into the issues that we have. Yep. Yeah. Honestly, looking back at things, I had a real hope that uh, President Trump was going to have the balls to push uh, for federal legalization. I think he would have won over a lot of liberals if he would have done that. Uh, and then we got Biden, who knows what he's doing, uh, you know, any day of the week. So. He doesn't know what he's doing. He, Biden doesn't know what he's doing any any minute of the day. And I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm more of like a moderate constitutionalist libertarian type. I'm like, if you want to smoke crack at home, smoke all the crack you want. Just don't come over here and steal my VCR, and we don't have a problem. <laughs> that I, you know what I mean. I don't care if you want if you want to pretend that you're a boy or a girl or whatever the hell you want to do. Just don't push it down my throat. Just don't push it on uh, my family's children. Don't, don't make it um, something that's cool and trendy. You know what I mean? Because it, it is, it is an issue. And these people, you know, they have, they have a lot of tough times being who they feel that they are or whatever. And so I try not to get into politics, but if you remember, Joe Biden was going to make it legal. They're going to make weed legal. Him and Kamala Harris are going to make it legal. And then what do they do? They pardoned a bunch of people who had misdemeanors for like carrying a, a joint in a public, in a uh, federal park. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like who, who, and he's talking about how they can't get jobs. They can't do this. That was bullshit. No felonies were, were expunged. All the people that were, that he um, pardoned 
got a fancy letter in the mail if they even still lived at the address from when they got convicted 20 years ago. Because remember, they can't get an apartment, they can't get a house, but they sent them a letter saying that you're forgiven for your for your sins, basically. So, <laughs> and people heralded it. I saw it. I saw even people in our industry being like, good job, creepy Uncle Joe. And it's like he didn't do shit. He didn't do shit. He pardoned, what, 1,600 people who had a misdemeanor. A misdemeanor doesn't keep you from getting a job. It doesn't keep you from getting an apartment, a bank account. It, these days, uh, these days, a felony or misdemeanor for cannabis is almost like something you want to put on your resume to show you know what you're doing. Right. Then you know you're a master grower and you can get a six-figure job at your new dispensary. Right. <laughs> That's funded by some guys who've never even smoked weed before, but they got a bunch of money and their dad's an attorney and their name's Chad. Oh, we, we could talk all day about Chad and his. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah I, it's kind of. Cr- go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just, gonna- <laughs> uh, just going to say it's kind of crazy how like, you know, I'd say most people are pretty libertarian, you know, middle of the road like me and like you. And yet the country is divided just doesn't make sense it's it's all by design and i think that um you know that it it's they obviously they want to keep you divided um they even talk like they talk about race relations and things like that i felt like i I graduated high school in 1991 in a place that was like an epicenter of slavery and our school was probably half black and half white and we all got along better than we because like hip-hop music had brought that culture to each other and everybody, you know, I have black friends that go to ACDC concerts and you went, you know, so it was different. Now I feel like the racial tensions even worse and it's obviously created by the media and the government and there's no moderation anymore. You're either a full on conservative Bible thumping, like anti-abortion conservative or you're a LGBTQT, LMNOP, socialist, communist, like, crazy person who wants free money from the government there's no one in the middle anymore and uh it'd be nice to see us get back to that but i don't know man i'm just glad to be out here in the country where everybody has a lot of guns (laughs) well you know um yeah (laughs) we we could get off on that tangent oh yeah uh, too but that'll be for another episode uh Hordy, where where can people follow you um, on social media and then uh, get in touch with you for business purposes? Yeah, um, my Facebook, I have Hordy Control, H-O-R-T-I, Control. I also have Horty Chris, H-O-R-T-I, which is probably the best place to get a hold of me. K-R-I-S, not C-H-R-I-S. So Horty Chris with a K and no H. Um, on Instagram, I have Dustroom is the site for the actual business, D-U-S-T-S-H-R-O-O-M, and then 40 Chris again on Instagram. Those are pretty much the two I do. I'm a little too old for TikTok, and I can't I, – I talk too much too. to only be able to use 150 characters on Twitter. So I just stick with the old Instagram mostly, and I, I check Facebook every day to see whose birthday it is, but I don't really participate in all the social experimentation they're doing out there, so – no, I'm I'm not on Facebook at all anymore. And yeah, I I I do love their emails though when they tell me I have friends having birthdays so that I can uh, send them a message. Every day I log on, I go to so and so, and because I have thousands of friends on there from the Heavy Tea Show, right? So 
so and so and 13 other people have birthdays today and i go there and i go happy birthday send happy birthday send happy birthday send and then i just go back to instagram and look at pictures of cars with big turbos on them and stuff and uh yeah but that's uh, also you can uh look us up at uh hortycontrol.com dustroom.com and then the new company which i haven't gotten up and running yet but it also has a website hortyfilter.com if you want to inquire about uh getting the products um or or purchase i don't sell direct we sell through distributors uh for your grow gens and whatnot we use uh hrg horticultural rep group and then for um everyone else we use dl wholesale both of those companies carry our products and you can set up accounts with them and get our products in. Um, if you have any questions about it, hit me up on Instagram. It's probably the best way. Send me a, a DM in Instagram. I don't have messenger on Facebook. I'm not installing more apps to be able to look at messages. So hit me up on Instagram at either Dustroom or Hordy K R I S. And I can point you in the right direction, help you figure out anything. You know, people consult with me a lot, even on just grows because I have a lot of experience. I do, a lot of consulting on the side for a little extra bread and uh, any questions you have. I mean, I, I usually probably have the answer or I know who can get it to you. Well, uh, Chris, it was really good uh, getting to talk with you again and uh, you know, hear about your background and stuff and um, yeah, ho hope to see you in person uh, sometime down the road. Absolutely. Hey, Eric, I appreciate your time. Um, good luck with the podcast. I like that you're doing it. People need to keep this kind of stuff going on, like you said, and uh, I'm glad we were able to get 20 or 30 minutes out of this interview. Shoot, that was it. I'm on 50 minutes by my count. That was a joke. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a paper in front of the clock. I didn't even know how long we were going. You were like, I, I got a bunch of questions. Like, I'm like, don't worry. I've done this thousands of times. I can... I can talk a lot and I can talk in an interview on a podcast. It's what I used to do, right? <laughs> yeah, you're a talker. Thanks, man. Well, Chris, on, on that note, good talking with you and we'll see you soon. All right, take care, man. 